welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This evening we are going to conclude uh, our three-part series entitled Follow Me, in which we have been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in light of the fact that we live in a very consumer-orientated society, which in turn tells us that everything in life should revolve around us and that we are to be the center of our worlds, that basically everything is there for our convenience. And this isn't at all the easiest launching pad for when one comes to look at such a subject as discipleship. It really is countercultural to talk about discipleship. So I want to start off by reading a familiar passage in regards to discipleship, but really is quite a challenging one. It's one that we can easily just go over very quickly. But I want us to read it as it sets a marker, as it were, for where we want to go. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38 says, Then Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his life? What can a person give in exchange for his life? For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy angels. So thus far, we have looked at some of the challenges around discipleship, some of the challenges of doubt, of control, letting him really have control of our lives, that you will call to be servants of, and yet friends with Jesus. And how do we balance that out? How do we work that out? And then we took a few moments to look at the whole area of being converted or conversion. Along with that, we took some time to look at the role of a rabbi in the first century Palestine that they said, or they were asked by students, could the student follow the rabbi? So that when Jesus was saying, follow me to these disciples, it was pretty radical in the context of that culture. It wasn't unheard of, but it's a pretty radical statement. And then we looked at the whole area that we're not converts and then disciples. There is no dual phase that we are disciples of Jesus, that there's no progression from the one to the other. We are all disciples. And yet the convert and the disciple really has completely different mindsets. I was walking out last Sunday night and somebody called me over and they showed me something on their phone which I thought was really good. I want to show it to you tonight. So we bring this to a close by looking at some of the how-to or what-to-do next aspects of the call to be disciples. If, however, we're not able to work out exactly the next step, at least try to attempt to gauge where we are in this process, where we are in our thinking. Does our thinking need to have some adjustments? Or where am I? Do I need to radically reappraise my life in regards to the call to discipleship? Maybe even something of a discipleship health check. And where to from now? Those sort of questions I want to provoke. One of the challenges one always faces when you talk about discipleship is to find that incredibly difficult balance 
on the one hand, to avoid being legalistic and lists of do's and don'ts and just incredibly religious and, and, as I said, legalistic, whilst on the other side, to hold in tandem that the Bible says some pretty straight things to us. It sets the bar pretty high in some things. There are some really tough calls in there. That what we've just read, that we are to leave, we are to follow, we are to give up, we are to be like him. And how do you get that balance without legalism on the one side, and yet reinforcing the fact that we are called to be disciples? And um, I'm not sure that I'm going to get it right, so bear with me on that. But somewhere between those two extremes, we've got to get a balance. So let's have a go. It is my strong belief and some of you may disagree with me, that discipleship simply isn't a program to go through a list of do's and don'ts, and at the end, one will be able to call oneself a disciple. It's not quite so easy. Such programs, you can buy book upon book upon book on how to be a disciple or the call of a disciple. And some of them may be of help. They may be able to give us insight but they in and of themselves, a program in and of itself, will not transform us into great disciples. There are two things that I believe that are key, that are pivotal when you come to looking at the whole area of discipleship. Firstly, the right environment, the right environment for our lives and how we live that out. And secondly, discipleship, whilst it cannot be programmed, it does need to be intentional. For when we are not intentional, or it seldom or rarely happens. I have, sometimes I have all the best intentions, but if I really am not deliberate and intentional in making some things happen in my life, they will never take place. Unless we are intentional about having people speak into our lives, if we're not intentional about setting times apart, to talk with Jesus, to walk with him, to talk with him about his word and what he's doing in our life. Our Christian experience will not survive with occasional, occasional exposures to Jesus. If our life is made up of occasional exposures to his truth, to his word, to conversation, then we will struggle to survive. It needs time. It needs time for us to be intentional, to connect with the source of life. How that looks for you is up to you. That's where it becomes legalistic. If you do this or do that, do the next thing. You've got to work that out. There's no list of do's and don'ts that are, I'm going to, oh, you've got to be up at six o'clock in the morning. You've got to, those sort of things. To live intentionally doesn't mean we follow this list of rules, but it does mean that we intentionally seek God in every facet of our life. A couple of verses from Ephesians say, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Very strong challenge. Stop messing around. Do what you need to do. Time is short. And added to this, we have that familiar but challenging words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We've often heard this before, but it's worth saying again. Paul offers crucial insight 
into spiritual growth while speaking to people who already believe. He is saying, work out your salvation, not work on it. You cannot add to it. You've been saved. That's all done and dusted. But work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, he throws out a challenge. He doesn't tell you how to do it. He just throws out that challenge. And two things worth of note. Firstly, that God has a role to play and a part to play in our discipleship. And so do we. So how do we, therefore, in the words of Philip Yancey, I love this, reach for the invisible God. That just conjures up some, a wonderful challenge and a wonderful invitation. So therefore, in the light of all that we know and all that we've heard, how do we, ordinary people, reach for the invisible God? For me, part of the answer, as I said earlier, is by creating good environments, right environments that are conducive to allow God to speak to us through his word, through his spirit, and through others that he challenges us, that he encourages us, and he shapes us. And I've just put down four or five, maybe five things that I want us to go through very quickly this evening that I find are really helpful for myself. First of all, discipleship without community, without a community of believers is impossible. Now, I know we know the theology and the, and the theory around this, but we will not be functioning effective disciples without a community of believers. Everything about the New Testament takes for granted that faith, that discipleship takes place in the arena of others. If I can say, say it like that, it's a given. It just presumes that it was worked out in the company of others. One of the striking features of the early church is that it had an incredible sense of shared lives. They shared their lives together. Acts 2, Acts 3, how they shared their lives was an incredible factor of how they lived their Christian life. But shared lives today are not so common as they were then, and our culture is different. But shared lives is still the crucible for how God will shape discipleship in our life. We need the community of faith. We need others, and we'll unpack this a little bit more in a moment. But to think that we can do it on our own is simply dumb. Jesus created a community of followers who traveled and lived with him and learned as they went. They grew in faith. They grew in faith individually, but they did so largely in the setting of a community. And the same is for us, that we will grow in faith individually, but it is done in the sense of a community. For us as followers of Jesus today in an individualistic age and consumer-orientated society, it is vital that when we desire discipleship, we need to see it interwoven with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the way that Rick Warren says it. You cannot fulfill the purposes of your life on your own. Life is not a solo act. You need a church family. Now, for most of us, we would feel pretty comfortable with that. We're sitting here tonight, a lot of us with our friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, family, all that. We feel pretty comfortable with that, which is great. But even in a group, it is worth notice, notice, noting that whilst we may be surrounded by others, discipleship isn't always a natural byproduct. It still doesn't happen without intention. Second thing that I want us to build on that 
Don't surround yourself with people who always agree with you. Don't surround yourself with people who always agree with you. I believe this is such a crucial aspect to discipleship. The need to have people in our lives who usually aren't family or best friends because they often won't say the tough stuff, but people that will love and care for us enough to tell us the truth about our actions, our attitudes that they think need to be challenged. If we don't have those people in our life, we will fall short in so many areas. We need people that will care enough for you and I and our growth in Christ that they will push into us. They will push on despite any reaction that they may get from our wounded pride. When you have people that speak truth into your life in a loving and gracious way, your pride will be wounded. And the caliber of the people that you have chosen to speak into that situation will be ones that will push on regardless of your wounded response. (coughs) I don't know if this is a good confession or a negative confession. I'm a big fan of Alicia Keys. I am a big, big fan of uh, Alicia Keys. And um, I love her. My favorite CD of hers is Girl on Fire. <laughs> and one of the um, songs, I don't know if I've gone down or up or across in anybody's estimation or at all. No, and the favorite song of hers off that CD, I nearly said album, but I remembered it's a CD, Not Even the King. And in a slightly different context, but also a similar context, She says, there are people who haven't got a friend that are not on the payroll. They ain't got a friend that's not on the payroll. And she talks about how precious this thing that she has, that she's in love. She talks about some people who are so sad that they haven't got people who aren't friends that are not on the payroll. You get what it says. We need to be people who are friends and speak truth into our life that are not just our family or the people who will say the right thing, but people who will challenge us where we're at. We need to have independent input into our lives. Most people around us are not necessarily interested in our development, so we have to be intentional, intentional about creating an environment where we are brave enough to have people who have our best interests at their heart, at heart, they will all... They will ask the awkward questions. They will challenge the bad and grumpy attitudes. They will challenge the harshly spoken remark or the point of view that is simply wrong. (laughs) For those of us who were old enough to remember when Elvis Presley died back in the the mid-70s, there's only about two or three of us. (laughs) Well, there's maybe a few more, but... You and I remember it. Don and I remember when Elvis Presley died. <laughs> and, one <of> the thi- <laughs> and one of the things that they said that led to his demise and his downfall, and maybe in some way, sadly, his premature death, was due to the fact that he didn't have anyone around him who told him the truth about his behavior that he was becoming indulgent, 
that he was doing drugs too much, that he had become overweight and bloated. And they said that if Elvis Presley had people around him who cared enough for him and spoke truth into his life and weren't just intimidated by who he was, he may still well be alive today. That incredible loss. Incredible loss of an incredible artist. And you know, we need to have people into our life who speak our truth to us because we may be alive for another 30, 40 40 years, but we don't want to be dead in that time. Dead spiritually. Dead to the things of God. (laughs) Jesus has so much to say about about truth. But for some, we'd rather live with the long-term consequences of things we know aren't right in our lives and thinking than face the temporary pain of truth. It has been said that if truth can be spoken at the right time, with affection, beneficially, and from a good heart, it will revolutionize a life. Saying exactly the same thing about, really, as John 8.32 says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It says, I'll come back. It says, better to have an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. You know, Psalms, Proverbs, I should say, 27, 5, and 6 are not easy, but they are so, so true. I don't really know. I don't really know when political correctness started to get balmy, when it started to get out of hand and started to take root. But I remember, especially in the, in the British churches back in the early 90s, when the issues of role of women in the church and the issues of race and color were being discussed, it was an incredibly pivotal time. I don't know when it was happening here in New Zealand, but some of the crazy discussions we had around women in ministry, some of the crazy discussions we had about the role of race and, 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 and gender was, to me, so crazy. That's the only word I can think of. I know Nelson Mandela had come out of jail. Nelson Mandela was now president of South Africa. And this was what everybody seemed to be talking about. Some of the discussions were often heated. They were often forceful. They were brutal with feelings running high on both sides. For me personally, the issues were non-event. They were quite straightforward. For me, there is no difference between any of us in Christ and that we are all equal, regardless of gender, color, race, etc. However, respect, irrespective of how much I thought I was not involved in these discussions, irrespective of how much I wanted to do what I thought the Bible says, I really felt God challenge me at that time. What was I? It was about 25 years ago, so I'd been 30. And I just felt God really challenge me. And I just felt God in, in that conversation over a period of a week or so, reminding me of the, the deceitfulness of my own heart. And the just challenging me of the darkness of my own heart. And, you know, we don't know our own blind spots. You know, they're, they're called blind spots because we can't see them. And that's why they're there. And so I decided to do, a fo- to do the following. These are relevant to the facts. They are not racist descriptions. I had a friend. Her name was Jill. She was single, white, female from the States. I had another. 
lady friend, her name was Sandy. She was female, black, Afro-Caribbean. And I asked them, I invited them, we had coffee together, and this is how the conversation went. I said to them that I had a real desire, that here I was with 30, going into the next 10 years of my life, that I wanted to make sure that I wasn't deceiving myself, that I wasn't just, just deceiving myself, no other way of putting it. And I gave them an open invitation. Jill, to speak into my life at any time, any place, anywhere, about anything that I said or wrote or preached about women at all. And if I said, if I was anything less than kind, gracious, and biblical, you had the right to phone me up, come and see me anytime, day or night, and challenge me over what I said. For the next three or four years, she played an incredible role in my life and has become a lifelong friend. Now, Sandy did exactly the same. If I said to her, Sandy, I just need you to speak into my life, and the same thing, same remit. If I say anything that is slightly prejudiced, racial, anything like that, I want you to pick up the phone, I want you to come and speak to me, and I want you to challenge me. Because these were key things in my life. I didn't want any issues in my life about women and the role, and I thought I was okay on it, but I needed someone to check. I did not want to be racist. I didn't want to know anything about that, but I wanted to challenge it. And I put people in my life who spoke truth, and they held held me accountable because they loved me, and they had an invitation to do so. I think that we need to do that. Somebody said to me, "How how did you do that? I just came up with the idea. I didn't read it anywhere. It was the best way forward that I could think of. And I'm not saying you've got to get people in your life who will just specifically be like that, but we need people who will speak truth into our life and run the risk of offending us. (laughs) Next, thirdly, discipleship usually demands that we need to be less busy. I believe that there needs to be a much broader conversation, much broader discussions as Christians, in regard to how busy we think our lives really are. But the typical dialogue for many of us goes like this. How are you doing? Well, to be honest, I am really busy, comes the answer. And whilst we may receive sympathy from our busy friends, I feel certain that we don't receive any from our God. In a busy culture, discipleship will struggle to survive. Whichever way you wish to look at discipleship, it will demand time and will be forever fighting against the busyness of your life. Busy is not wrong. Being busy, working hard, doing all that stuff is admirable and good. But when it squeezes out the most important or becomes an excuse more often not to do what we must, then something has broken down or the wheels have come off the cart. Something needs to get fixed. When the things we are spending our time on aren't purposeful, when we use busy as an excuse, or when it becomes the rule for our life, this is when it gets a little bit messy. Busy is one of those conversation-ending words, for it leaves you nowhere to go in your conversation. If I say to you, oh, how, how are you doing? Oh, I'm really busy. I don't know how to come back on that. So I don't know what busy means to you. 
if you were up at six o'clock and if you put a 12-hour day in and you've done all that, you're absolutely busy. Your perception of busy may be totally different to mine, but it doesn't allow us to go there. I am a farmer's son. I'm a dairy farmer's son. I have a concept of busy that is shaped by my upbringing. But yours may be completely different. But your definition of busy or vice versa mine may mean two completely different things. So I think we've got to be really careful how we use it. If I choose, if you choose to do things that are above and beyond the normal requirements of life that I see as a life choice, I think we've got to be really careful around busy and especially in the area of discipleship. I had a text Wednesday. Can't remember. Sometime in the day. It says, Chris, are you free at four o'clock this afternoon? And can you go and ref Fairfield? Not Fairfield. Was it Fairfield? Fraser. Fraser girls first 15. And I can't say this word, so forgive me. Against Pataru. Is that okay? Everybody knows what it is. <laughs> so I had this and I, was, I looked at my diary and I texted them back and I said, yeah, I can do that. This is something I chose to do. I enjoyed it. It was incredible. But it lacks integrity to say, oh, I was so busy. When in fact, I chose to take 90 minutes out of my late afternoon to go and do something that I chose to do. Then I went home, did what I hadn't done at 3.30, 4, 5 o'clock. And I ended up working late because a choice I had made earlier in the day of my own free volition. As I said, I worked, ended up working late because of a choice I made. There was nothing wrong here. There was nothing wrong in taking time out to do something that I, I really, really enjoyed. But I do wish to challenge the integrity of our language and our reality when we say, oh, so easily, I am so, so busy, when in reality, we are making life choices to do things that may not be essential and fundamental to life. Make them, enjoy them, do them, but be careful around, oh, I'm too busy to do that, or I'm too busy to go to church, or I'm too... It's a life choice that I have made. I'm defining busy in this context as the kind of busy that edges out intentional living. God will, Dallas Willard says, God will, generally speaking, not compete for our attention. If we will not withdraw from things that obsess and exhaust us into solitude and silence, he will usually leave us to our own devices. In a recent survey done in the United States of 13,000 people, all born-again believers, to the following statement they were asked, they said, the busyness of my life gets in the way of developing my relationship, of developing my relationship with God. Out of that, six out of 10 of them responded that this was often or always true for them. Now you can say, oh, we can dismiss that. Oh, that's the United States. And I mean, like, they're all like that over there. Striking numbers, though, even if it wasn't, if it isn't a Kiwi survey. It seems a lot of Christians are overwhelmed and as a result, they're experiencing only an intermittent relationship with God. And if we were actually to dig down on this data a little bit further and a little bit more incisive, 
it would be true that of the ages of 25 to 45, that those figures were much higher. This is not something about guilt, but this is a desire to stimulate a conversation and provoke a response in each and every one of us about our commitment to discipleship. Now, something that happened to me over the last couple of weeks, in my own worship time, whenever I'm worshiping and making sure that nobody can hear me sing and I'm away early morning or I'm in the car, I always very, very often revert back to old hymns. That's what I grew up with. I just sing a lot of old hymns. And one of my favorite is, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I think everybody knows this, or most people know this. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I remember one, one morning, and I was just singing that, and I was singing that morning by morning, new mercies I feel. And I just felt God say to me, I just felt him just drop this into my spirit. He said, Chris, when did you last take more than a fleeting couple of moments every morning to really look at the mercies that I have shown to you? When did you take more than just a nodding acknowledgement of that? I didn't feel that God was saying, come on, son. But I just felt that he had said to me, I'd let something slip. If I'd let something slip, that I would just take a couple of seconds. I'd say, Lord, I want to thank you and name a couple of things. I just felt God said I'd let it slip. That I needed to redig that time of appreciation and acknowledging his mercies. As I said, it wasn't the guilt. It was just a challenge. <laughs> Next thing that I just want to quickly move on to. Ask God to give us a purpose beyond what we do for a living. Touch briefly. I hope I can communicate in a few moments what I mean. I believe that whilst we need our faith community to, to work out our discipleship, that we equally need to be intentional about putting ourselves in environments where we can serve others, we can see something different to the norm of our life, where we are not in control of the situation and we simply stand and serve. I think a lot of us get a little bit nervous if we're not really in control. Sometimes we need to counter that by putting ourselves in environments where we just serve other people. And if I can put it like this, do what we're told. It's an incredibly humbling process. It's a good one when you just have to do what you're told. Both my kids have left home now, so I can't tell them that anymore. As great as a dad, just do what you're told. It's just, no, it's just me. Put ourselves somewhere where we are not in control, but simply stand and serve. It does us good to be taken out of our routine, out of our comfort zone, and be in a position where we are stretched. Because you know, I know nothing about clothes, but if you stretch clothes, they never go back to what they were before. They are ruined. I think that God wants to do that. He wants to take us out of our comfort zone, stretch us, and ruin us, so we can never go back to being the same. Serving others helps begin that process of setting us free from selfishness and self-centeredness, which is one of the core purposes of discipleship. Andy Stanley says this, if we serve only ourselves, we will end up all by ourselves. 
If we do all things for our own self-interest, we will end up all alone. And that is where many people are today, (laughs) all alone. And talks about Christians in this context being all alone. Came across a school, I won't say who it is, but there's a school in Hamilton. And it's a good school. If I named it, you'd know it. Oh, that's a good school. And they have a project. And if you went to this school, you'd probably remember it. They have a project, and it's called Over the Fence. And it really is an excellent idea. They are tapping into something that they have their years 12 and 13, I think it's a couple of times a week, go into a local primary school for an hour or a couple of hours over lunchtime, and they help take care of the kids. They help in the classroom, they help in the whatever it is, and they send the kids out from school into another school, thus it's called over the fence, and these 12 and, year 12 and year 13 are told or encouraged to go and serve in a different and completely different setup. And I read the quote of this uh, team leader. He says, we can all be a bit self-involved and it does us good to serve other people who we don't know. It's really good. I think that school is tapping into something that we need to re-tap into as the church, if that makes sense. Just a couple of final thoughts because I want to start to wrap this up. First of all, I appreciate that we all have plenty to do and that we are all busy. But I believe that there's something that we can do seasonally, that for a month or for a term or for six months, we can commit ourselves to sign up, to help, to serve something that is different and outside our comfort zone. And I think it should be done, secondly, different to anything that we do in our faith community. It puts us out and it makes us vulnerable and it allows God to do things through us, through people who don't really know us, who don't care about us, who will, won't worry about offending our sensitivities. But it produces and develops discipleship. Finally, it won't work if our private life doesn't match up to our public life. We've already said that discipleship is intentional and it's relational, but above all, it is transparent. It's about me inviting you into my life to see what it is really like. It is you inviting me into your life to see what it is really like and allowing God to work through that. Or if it's not me, it's someone who you know and trust. Put another way, it's about me teaching on a Sunday what scripture says about loving my wife and my children and then inviting all of you over to our home at any time to see that what we do at seven o'clock in the evening is the same that we do at seven o'clock in the morning, and it aligns with what I said on a sermon the Sunday before. That's what it's about. That the words of my mouth match up with the reality of what we say. And you know, God won't be mocked. He won't be mocked. He He can cope with confession and admission and people who are broken, he can deal with that, but he will not be mocked. And our private life and our public life have to match up. In regard to this subject, one of those seminal moments in my own life came when I was at a conference, and, I was, and the speaker was talking about the subject of, I suppose it was holiness, really, for, for us as leaders. And this was all pre-laptops, pre-mobile phones. 
I'm just feeling really old tonight. I've talked about Elvis Presley and pre-mobiles. And probably most of you just don't remember dial-up either. Does anybody remember dial-up? Oh, don't feel so bad now. And if you don't know what dial-up is, go and see the people who just put their hands up. <clears throat> and as I said, it was pre-devices, all that. And, uh, and he, this is what his challenge was. I got no idea who it was, but I, this was his challenge. He said, anyone should be able to come into your house or into your home, go through your books, go through your video collection as it was then, go through your wardrobes, go through absolutely anything and everything, and they shouldn't be able to find anything that embarrasses or, comprom or compromises your life as a Christian. Pretty challenging, isn't it? Pretty challenging. Nothing embarrassing or compromising to one's Christian life. Something that I have never, ever forgotten, as you can see. But there's something that I know that we as a family, that we as a couple, Hope and I, have chosen to live by. If you come to our home, you can go, you can have a look around, you'll find a few dodgy sermons, but everything else will be fine. There will be nothing there that would embarrass or compromise. You know, I believe that this is applicable today. And maybe we've replaced video collections, but we've got phones, devices, computers. I always get nervous, of, I won't tell you, but if anybody comes up to me and wants to know what my code is to my laptop, you can have it. If you want to know it, you can have it. Kes knows it, because I tell her because I'll forget about it. But part of that is because if anybody wants to come and have a look at my laptop or my phone or my iPad, again, you'll find some dodgy sermons and some dodgy songs and some dodgy music, but nothing else. Now, please don't come and ask me. <laughs> I got about 300 people saying, oh, listen, like, oh, you listen to that? But I think that that's the challenge May not be there yet, but the challenge needs to be the same in those areas of God transforming our lives. I have to confess that the willingness in our culture and even within the church to accept the dichotomy between the public and the private is unsettling to me. It's unsettling to me. Not going to go there today, but the call is to consistency, integrity, and whatever we need to do in light of what God calls us today. The desire to be a disciple lets people see on the outside what's going on on the inside. It means you'll, you get what you see. Friends, I believe that discipleship requires an open door and an open life policy. But I want to conclude this section by saying it's not about perfection, but it is about progress. And this isn't a call to to perfection, of course it's not. That's ridiculous. And if the enemy is saying, oh, well, you'll never be perfect. No, of course we don't. That's not rocket science, is it? But it is a call to a progress in our life that we overcome things today that we couldn't yesterday, that we're sharper on tomorrow and stuff that we're sh that, than we were on it today. And that progress takes place in our life. Musicians, please. You know, I want to bring this to a close, and I wish to do so by going and seeing full circle why we want to talk about discipleship. Why do we talk about discipleship in the first place? Discipleship 
is key and fundamental to who we are, for it's all about God's love for us. We talk about it. We talk about the call because he loves us so much. He made us in the image of Christ. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's how crazy he is about us. That's how crazy he is to call us to be a people of discipleship and to respond to his word. See, what Jesus wants tonight, what he is looking for, is that intimate, personal relationship that each and every one of us will follow hard after him and that he will not just be a bit part or a byproduct of our life, but that he will be our lives and out of that, everything else will flow. For many of us, that's an ongoing challenge. But for some of us, we've never started our walk with Jesus. As we come and we worship, just allow the Holy Spirit to just challenge us and to speak to us and to comfort us as we respond to his word. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.